Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. That was part of it. That was part of the journey for me, seeing how it was exhausting and it was absolutely very taxing. But at the same time, it helped me confront a lot of things about myself feel more empowered with myself. And by the end of that year, I had also really realized that I enjoyed being in my own company and that I was partially devaluing that for the consent and approval of others, right? Mm. And for... And I just came back to myself in a way where after that year, any of the half-hearted guys that keep you on back burner and text you and all those things, like I cut them all off. And I felt really good about myself because I was like, you know, I like me. I like my own company. And I don't like that I'm doing things that are making me feel bad in an effort to please other people. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business, so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, 
and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Jen, so excited to have you here on the show. I am so looking forward to having you share your story about how you were able to turn your passion for travel into a full-time career, which I think sounds like a dream, but you've actually been able to make that a reality. So thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I love your story. You are Boricua, correct? Correct. All right. So fellow Puerto Rican in the house, you are actually back living in Puerto Rico. So I definitely want to dive into that. But first, let's start off with you introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are. My name is Jen Ruiz. I'm the solo female travel behind Jen on a Jet Plane. I have been doing this now full time for four years. I am an Amazon bestseller, three time TEDx speaker, and I freelance write for outlets like the Washington Post, Voters Travel and Matador Network. Amazing. Okay. So this was not always your career. You actually started off as an attorney, right? Correct. I practiced law for five years before making the transition. Okay. So I'd love to know more about that career choice and if your family had anything to do with it, because I think our families as Latinas, as first-gen Latinas are the first ones to go to college, work in corporate, get these like cushy salaries. There's what I have found to be a lot of pressure sometimes from our families about what our careers should look like. And I'm wondering if you felt that way. I definitely had my parents telling me from early on that they thought I would be a good attorney. So it, <laughs> I think I've always had a passion for being on a soapbox and telling stories and all of those things. So it was expected, but ultimately it wasn't what I had started off as. I was actually a communications major when I started. I wanted to do broadcasting and writing and things of the sort. I ended up becoming a poli-sci major in college. I went to FIU in Miami and the communications campus was really far away. It was not on the main campus. Uh, and I didn't want that to be my major because I wouldn't be able to have gotten involved with as many things as I did when I was on the main campus. So picked poli sci, ended up working for a U.S. senator while I was there, uh, the head of the Republican National Committee, actually, as a Democrat, which was really interesting for me to be able to see things from the other perspective and fell in love with politics. I It's very strange for me because as a Puerto Rican who was born on the island but raised in the U.S., I feel like I have a lot of pride and a lot of sense of orgullo about the different both cultures. I feel so lucky to be both Puerto Rican and also the only Hispanic country that is automatically a U.S. citizen. So I felt like I had so many privileges and opportunities. I could learn whatever I wanted. I could travel pretty much uninhibited. And that made me really value that. So I started to fall in love with the political process, with the idea of the U.S., with the idea of law and using law to effectuate change. And I went to law school straight after college. So at 21, I was already in law school. By 24, I was a BART attorney. So it was 
was a lot and it was a lot of work, but something that I was very proud of. And I felt like I had achieved that pinnacle of success that everybody has as that metric. You know, once I was able to say, I'm a lawyer, people looked at me completely different, just having that as an introduction. And it's something I miss a little bit now because I say I'm a travel writer and people are like, oh, like, are you broke? Do you even get paid? Like, how do you make money? How is that a job? Which I never had to deal with those questions because you say you're a lawyer and you get this automatic respect, this automatic sense of like gravitas. So I was happy that I did it. And I'm happy that I have an Esquire title behind my name. I feel very privileged in that I am the first person in my family that's actually had the opportunity to pursue my passion, to actually find something that I enjoy and to not feel stuck in one track just because it is prestigious or because I have student loans or because people think that that's what I'm expected to do. Yeah, I absolutely love the dichotomy that your upbringing represents on being born on the island and then coming to the mainland. There's a lot of people who don't necessarily understand, first off, the relationship that Puerto Rico has with the United States and the fact that we're not immigrants Um, (laughs) and knowing what it's like for my family members to live on the island. Like, I also understand why so many people decide to leave because there's just not the same level of opportunity for folks that you would find here, even though we're all quote unquote part of the United States. And so I'm wondering as someone who was born on the island, but raised in the mainland, what are some of the biggest differences that you could explain to folks about like why maybe people decide to leave? Well, my mom was an educator, a teacher, and I think her salary here would have been around $20,000 working at a private school. And when she went to the U.S., she was able to rise up in the ranks, become dean of students, become a principal, and have a much higher earning potential, and even use her bilingual education skills to her advantage, because now she was in demand. It's really Mm. hard to find bilingual teachers. Yeah, And so that made just a complete difference in her finances, her ability to generate wealth and be the first person to do so. There is a big difference in the education system in that a lot of schools here are kind of traditionally, you know, you go to school, you get, you study, you go home. And in the U.S., I had so many opportunities to be involved in extracurriculars that took me all over the world. You know, I was competing in competitions, traveling for things that would never have happened in Puerto Rico. And so I was very grateful for that as well. In general, it's a different life here on the island. It can feel a little bit difficult, like you're just struggling to get by sometimes. And there's a levity, there's a sense of relief here in that people do have to deal with so many problems that they have a very much just like let it roll mentality. Like that's okay. Go get a medalla, go to the beach, like relax, everything will be fine. In the US, I felt like it was very much achievement oriented. And so a much faster pace, even after the first couple of years that I was living here. And then I went back to New York City for a conference. And I remember being at FedEx trying to get copies of my media kit. And the woman was like, oh, let me check you out while the copies are being made. And then I was like, really? Hey, one thing at a time, like I'm working on making you the copies. When that's done, I will check you out. And so I think it's just a different pace, a different lifestyle. And I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. I do very much enjoy living on the island now, but I am very grateful that I have the ability to earn much more as somebody who has remote work than I would as somebody who would just be working here on the island. Mm, yeah, I think that's a, a really important distinction for 
why a lot of people are now being attracted to live in Puerto Rico because of that remote work opportunity. It basically opens up your income unlimitedly. And if you have the privilege to be able to access those ways of making money, it makes Puerto Rico a very attractive place to live because of certain tax incentives. And that's one of the points of contention that a lot of people have with remote work and the digital nomad lifestyle and potentially contributing to the exploitation of different countries and cultures because of that level of access that has been opened up for so many people. Absolutely. And that's something that I see a lot of here because I'm in a community of podcasters and e-commerce people and the biggest names that you could imagine live here. And so Mm. it's been my first time being surrounded by millionaires. And that's actually a very interesting dynamic for me because for a while I had a lot of imposter syndrome. Do I belong here? Should I be among the millionaires? Are they going to know? Are they going to look down on me because I'm Puerto Rican? Like, should I make sure that I speak in a certain way? And then it's also really interesting because I've learned that it's not the money that makes people bad or good. Money is just the tool. And I think that there's very much that mentality here because in Puerto Rico with locals where it comes around scarcity because they don't know how to have that same income or income streams. And so when I moved to the U.S., I had people being like, oh, you know, you're an Indian, go back to your island, like all kinds of crazy things. Mm. And so I've never really been a fan of everybody go to their own places and stay there. I feel like the world should be open for people to travel. And I think the better solution is to help empower Puerto Ricans to realize, hey, you have the U.S. Postal Service. You have internet most of the time. And you can do these things too. And I don't think that there's enough emphasis on how to uplift Puerto Ricans, just rather a very strong divide between the haves and the haves nots. And Mm. so I've actually seen a lot of people here in this community that are Puerto Rican as well and in the community of millionaires that I live in and are trying to help locals get into crypto, trying to help tell different stories. And so I think that there's a way that everybody can have access to that same opportunity without feeling like this is something that only foreigners coming in have access to. Because I do believe Puerto Ricans Ricans learn English from the get-go, have the double language. So you're already double knowledge than the people who come here with just one language. You have the ability to reach double the audience. And there's so much entrepreneurial spirit here on the island that is just limited to brick and mortar. But if that were to be translated online, there's limitless potential because the people who are here, like they are just such good business people. They have their own drive and their own passion to get things done. So I would love to see the island be uplifted in that way where it's not foreigners versus Puerto Ricans, but rather Puerto Ricans are super wealthy because they're part of the U.S. and they take advantage of all of these opportunities to build income streams for themselves online. I really love that. And I think it's a matter of having more of these conversations where we are normalizing what we can create in our community. Like when you see what you want to achieve, it becomes easier to believe that you can also achieve it. And the fact that we are born American citizens is like a hella big fucking privilege that I think has been demonized in a way because there is that colonial relationship, to be honest. There's a lot of animosity. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of generational trauma that's been inflicted by the United States on Puerto Ricans. And so I think it's going to also require us to not 
forgive, but accept that that's the past and make the most of the situation. Because if we really want to drive change as a community, we need money. We need wealth to really change shit from the bottom up. We can then be more proactive about who's in a political office, who's running all these organizations that have such big influence, who's writing these tax laws, who's running the government and utilities. And without money, we can't really make the changes that we want to see. Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of people demonize money. They think if you have money, you're a bad person. If you care about money and money's a priority to you, then your priorities are off. Your priorities should be something different. But I think that there's a disconnect between realizing how important it is for the people that you want to effectuate change to have money. You could have Mm. the best ideas ever, but if you don't have the money to implement them, if you don't have the money to push them forward, they're just going to stay ideas. Right now, we're seeing a lot of problems because it is, you know, old white men that have money, just so much (laughs) of it. So if you want to see change, like give more women money, give more people in the LGBTQ community money, like give more minorities money. And that way you can also have an impact on this world that we're forming rather than just being victim and staying in that mentality of this is happening to me rather than I'm making this happen. There's a lot of books I've been reading. uh, Rachel Rogers, We Should All Be Millionaires, I think touches upon that really well in just changing that mindset of it's not a bad thing to have money. You want to have money. You should be empowering people to get that in order to really see a difference. Otherwise, nothing's ever going to change if it's only the people in power that don't look like you. Absolutely. And I also love that you touched on like our genetic predisposition to being hustlers. Like we will figure shit out. We are able to make something out of nothing. Everybody that I know in Puerto Rico has a side hustle out of necessity because the jobs just don't pay. And so we really do have like an entrepreneurial spirit weaved into our DNA, but it's just not being harnessed in the way that it can. And so I'm so passionate about this idea of just creating a community and environment where these conversations become normalized and we can actually empower people to take back their power by creating their own income. And so I want to dive into that with you. So first off, you found yourself in this lucrative law career. I'm wondering, why did you leave? If you try fighting with people every single day. (laughs) Does not sound fun. It's like thrilling at first and you get the high of the win and like, you know, getting the judge to declare you're right. And I feel like I was there at the time I needed to be for the people that I was able to help that I know other lawyers wouldn't have represented in the same way. I did have a little bit of a bleeding heart to me where I really wanted to help and I cared about my clients. And I realized a lot of lawyers to survive in the legal field kind of just have to shut down feelings and not care and just look at you as a number because that's how they're processing things. So what kind of attorney were you? Started off as a social security disability attorney. So I was helping people apply for benefits which the firm, their main process is you really never know who's going to be granted benefits or not. So it's a numbers game. Take on as many cases as you can and then see which of those get approved. But it felt very rushed. I would have thousand page medical file that I would get the day before the hearing and it maybe wouldn't even be complete. Then I'd sometimes be in a hearing with a person who's been disabled now for years and, you know, I don't have records of their heart attack or I don't have records of their stroke. And they're sitting here being like, why did we wait for years for this hearing? And you don't have this information yet. And so 
because it was such a high volume thing, because I felt like there were always constantly more cases. After that, I switched to doing contract law for a couple of years as well, where I was able and had the flexibility to decide which cases I took on. And so I was trying to take on cases where I felt like I was helping people. You know, you had this contract and somebody didn't pay you or something of the sort. And so it was interesting and rewarding, but it felt very taxing on me because I cared. And I think I could have maybe kept going if I had just become like every other lawyer and just really put this boundary between me and the cases and stayed emotionally detached. But it was really difficult for me to do. It felt very adversarial. I mean, I'm fighting with people all the time. I have older attorneys trying to intimidate me being like, oh, well, are you the paralegal? Oh, I've been doing this for 30 years. And I'm like, okay, that's great. But you're still scared to go to court and I will see you there. It just felt that feeling of being agitated. Like, you know, when something bad happens in your day, and you just mm-hmm. you keep rethinking it. And it was like that all the time. And then I started to find travel as a relief. I actually did not have any opportunity to travel the first couple of years that I was doing this. It was work on Christmas Day. I actually remember one firm that had like a Christmas lunch on, oh, on Christmas my Day. God. And That's I was like, awesome. the better, yes, like the better gift you can give me is just to let me go home. I don't want your free lunch. <laughs> just yes, let me no go. one wants the free pizza. Okay. <laughs> Where were you practicing, Terrible. by the way? South Florida. Okay. Got it. South yep. Florida. That's terrible. So you're working on Christmas and you're starting to use travel as an escape. Yes. So once I had that any semblance of PTO, I really tried to make the most out of it. So there was one year that I took six trips in a year. And then the year after that, I set out on my 12 trips in 12 months challenge before my 30th birthday, because I got to the point where I was like, my 20s are about to be done. And I have done nothing except work really hard for other people. And I haven't done anything really fun or amazing or just of my own right. So F it, like, I'm just going to go and I don't care if people, you know, I called out sick while going up on a hot air balloon ride at the Albuquerque International Balloon Festival. And I have no regrets because my job would replace me the next day if I wasn't there. And I was about to be out of quote unquote, like my youth, like my young carefree 20s. And I wanted to have something to show for it. So when I started this travel challenge, I did it in part because I wanted to really send my 20s off with a bang. And also because there's a lot of pressure on women to be at a certain place by 30. You Mm. have to be married, you have to have children, you have to be something. And so I was going to wedding showers and baby showers. And I feel inadequate because I'm not at that stage yet, even though I was so professionally accomplished. So it was also a way for me to distract myself from that, the horrible dating in in South Florida, which is just really (laughs) bad. I do not zero out of 10 recommend. So it was a way to redirect all of that energy, all of that anxiety into something productive and something purely for me. And that's why I didn't feel bad about doing it. I didn't feel bad about the days I called out sick. I didn't feel bad. Like I have always been, you know, I made sure my work was covered. I had a work buddy that was there in case an emergency came up, but There was a day where I was invited to be a VIP guest on The Chew that was doing the live taping at the Food and Wine Festival at Epcot. And both me and my work buddy called out that day. My boss was super suspicious. And it felt like a a TV show thing where you're like, I hope they don't turn on the TV and see me there in the audience, like being served by Carla Hall and being like, this is lovely. But we had such a great day. You know, we got a $50 gift card afterwards. We 
went and bought the really fancy margaritas at like Cueva de Tequila in the Mexico Pavilion. And it was just such a great experience. And I never looked back on it and was like, I really wish I'd been at work that day instead. Never. So it was a really interesting way that I realized travel was invigorating me and that every time I came back from a travel, like I lived in Naples at the time. So sometimes I'd have to fly out of Fort Lauderdale or Miami to get the flight deals. And I'd have a two hour drive back. And sometimes just driving on the open road with the sun and like the reggaeton playing, like I would just like scream out loud and joy. And I realized like that was the first time I really felt happy and joyful. And like I was doing something for me. And that's what made me want to pursue travel more. Mm, I absolutely love that story. And I resonate with it so much. It's funny how something happens as we're approaching 30 for many of us, especially if we're women, there's like this fucking checklist of shit that we're supposed to have done. You should be engaged or married and have, you know, 2.5 kids and buy your white picket fence house. And if you're not there, it's like, there's something wrong with you. doesn't matter how much you've professionally accomplished, because I think society still equates our value as women to who we're serving in what capacity and what role, whether you're mom or a wife or whatever. It's like these conversations about us doing things for ourselves are not normalized still. And so I'm so glad that you gave yourself permission to say, fuck it. Like I'm going to do what I want to do. And that started with your 12 trips in 12 months challenge. Uh, first off, how the heck did you orchestrate that? Because that sounds exhausting. Traveling for me is like half regenerative and half, I need a vacation for my vacation. I don't know if that's just me. It 100% was exhausting. I actually recall once because sometimes I would come back and after that two hour drive, go straight into the office because I had taken like a red eye flight. So I think it was the energy that I had and then that kind of determination of time is running out. It almost felt like the amazing race kind of thing. (laughs) It did get kind of messy towards the end when I started to double up on trips. So I actually ended up taking 20 trips to 41 cities across 11 countries. I lost it. (laughs) Wow. There was a flight deal, I was going. Like last minute, I ended up in Cuba over Labor Day, which Cuba was not high on my list originally. And uh, I ended up there just for like a 48 hour sprint because I found a really cheap 30 minute flight from Miami. When I got to Veterans Day, I actually double booked. I had Veterans Day off on Friday. So I had that one weekend. I had actually double booked myself, not realizing it because I found a deal to Argentina for 300 round trips. I was like, oh, book that. And then I realized it was the same time I'd already booked a Morocco trip. And then I had to pick which one do I want to do? It did get a little bit messy towards the end. Definitely at towards the end, my boss was like, are you really sick? I was like, does it really matter? I'm lucky to have the health that I have. And not everybody has that. And some people really do need to use their sick days. But I was young and I had these days allocated. And I've always felt like if that's my time that I've earned that I'm entitled to, what difference does it make to you if I am at home hugging the toilet or if I'm on the hot air balloon ride? Why do you care where I am? It shouldn't make a difference. And so it was not easy. And I think I was just motivated so much by thinking like, this is your chance to do something big and to go all in. And that helped keep me going. And I had some low moments as well. This is all going to be in my memoir that's coming out next fall. (laughs) But I had some moments where I took like three planes, two ferries to go to a random Greek island to meet up with this Greek guy that I had met in January. And then I got there and he turned out to be 10 years older than he said he was. So it was super crazy. And there were a lot of moments where I was like, what am I doing? I had a mini meltdown in Mexico when I went there to swim with whale sharks. And there was a storm that kind of followed me there. So all my plans were canceled. And I was just like, oh, 
something's going wrong. That was part of it. That was part of the journey for me, seeing how it was exhausting and it was absolutely very taxing. But at the same time, it helped me confront a lot of things about myself, feel more empowered with myself. And by the end of that year, I had also really realized that I enjoyed being in my own company and that I was partially devaluing that for the consent and approval of others, right? Mm. And for and I just came back to myself in a way where after that year, any of the half-hearted guys that keep you on back burner and text you and all those things, like I cut them all off. And I felt really good about myself because I was like, you know, I like me. I like my own company. And I don't like that I'm doing things that are making me feel bad in an effort to please other people. Mm. You know, I tell people all the time, solo travel is a religious, spiritual experience. You don't get it until you've done it. And then you're just like, holy shit, why have I been waiting for anybody else to travel? I started doing it in 2021. It was actually my gift to myself for quitting my job and going full time in my business. I said, I'm going to do this really scary ass thing that I said I would never do. And I went to Puerto Rico because I'm like, if I'm going to do my first solo trip, I want to go somewhere that I'm familiar with, somewhere where I understand the language and somewhere where I can easily navigate. And it's not going to be like, I'm going to go to freaking Vietnam or something where I just have no idea. So it was truly an awakening experience for me, realizing A, I actually like being by myself. I'm a great fucking company. We do amazing, fabulous things when I travel by myself. I don't have to worry about anybody's schedule, anybody arguing with me about what to do. I don't have to negotiate how much I want to spend on any activities. It was just the most liberating thing that now I'm like, I really, really have to like you if we're going to travel together because I know I'm going to have a freaking blast if I'm by myself. Absolutely. And I think we get so scared. You know, what will it be like dining alone? Will people judge me? Will they think I couldn't find anybody to come (laughs) with me? There's so much of that fear. And I found that actually, when you travel solo, you don't have the added buffer of what I consider like a human safety blanket, your friend, right, that speaks your language and is there with you and has money if you run out. And so in a way that's terrifying, but also it makes the experience much more different because now everybody that you're with, you're talking to. If you get Mm -hmm. in the back of a taxi, like as a person with a friend, you never talk to that taxi driver. They take you to your place and you're done. When you're traveling solo, you talk to the taxi driver, you're talking to the hotel clerk, you're talking to the bellman. Like you're just much more engrossed in the moment and you don't have that buffer to keep you from really connecting with the environment that you're in. And it's much more likely that you will get, I call it solo female travel magic. It doesn't have to be female. It's just where all of a sudden amazing things happen to you when you're putting yourself out there and people see that. The first instance that I had of that was when I was in Florence and I was by myself and I went to this opera because why not? I want to like opera. I don't have to be 40 to like opera. Like I like music and I like live performances. And it was in this really small church that had been converted into a performance venue. So the acoustics were amazing. I got there on time, which by Italy standard is like an hour early. I had time to chat with some of the people that were there taking tickets and setting up. And then next thing I know, you know, I paid for the upgrade to be in the front row. And like you said, I don't have to worry about whether or not somebody can also afford that. And I ended up at the intermission, they were like, oh, we'd like to announce a change in the programming. We want to dedicate a special song to a lady in the front row. And I was like, oh, 
And then this man started serenading me in Italian. Oh my um, God. That's incredible. It was, it was amazing. And if I had been there with a friend of mine, we'd sat down early. I never would have talked to anybody. I would have just been another guest at the performance venue, as opposed to this person now that, that they know that they're excited to meet, that they want to celebrate. And so that's just one example of ways that when you travel solo, like really unexpected, but wonderful things can happen to you that maybe wouldn't have happened to you if you had somebody with you. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Okay, so what do you say to folks that are like afraid to take those sick days for travel because they're like, well, if my job finds out, like I'm going to get fired. There's a couple of ways to do this. So first, you don't owe anybody an explanation. So you don't need to be here and be like, I got pink eye. I got <laughs> like whatever the case may be. Like very simple. I mean, I'm taking a sick day today. Thank you. I'm notifying you. I'm not asking you kind of thing because that's how sick days work. No details whatsoever. Just this is what's happening. And if some people follow up with that, I would just stay on the very minimal. But for the most part, you get into trouble when you start trying to craft these elaborate excuses and trying to explain yourself versus just delivering it as a matter of fact thing. I've always had this mentality. So I sometimes would in high school just like if I see like some signs and I'm not feeling great, like I'm just going to go home um, <laughs> and, and call it, you know, like a mental health day. I've also always been very aware of, I still have responsibilities. So I was still a National Hispanic Merit Scholar in high school. I was still able to get the grades I needed. So first and foremost, if you know that this is happening, I would plan ahead so that, you know, your schedule is clear. You handled anything time sensitive that day. Like don't be irresponsible. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a big part of being a professional where once people see that you can cover your bases, there's a lot less micromanaging, at least in a professional setting. There was still a lot of that as an attorney. I still had red pen on my work and things like of the sort, but I felt like I had the freedom to set myself up to leave things okay for the day that I'm gone. Like it's 24 hours. It's not going to make or break anything. If you're not there, there are other people that work there. Like, I think we have so much shame and so much guilt over taking time off period. And then when we do in the U S because we pride, you know, working yourself super hard and being sleep deprived, like kudos to you. No, that's terrible. Having that understanding that it's okay for you to take a breather that in 24 hours, nothing catastrophic really is going to happen. So if you can prepare for it, if you can leave it as it is and understand that these are days that were allocated to you. And again, if you're lucky enough to have good health, which in and of itself is the biggest blessing, then that's something where you shouldn't feel guilty. And I think a lot of people too, when they leave, they're like, Oh, but I'm around if you need me for anything. You can text me anything. I'm still available. I'm still checking my emails. No, turn off your emails. You're not checking anything. You're not available for anything. I am not here today. And I think that that's just the draw the line because if it helps you like understanding how easily replaceable you are and how the fact that you're job will continue whether you are there or not. That company is going to keep going with or without you until you are the company, right? Even Apple kept going without Steve Jobs. Like, right. <laughs> no one is that integral. So I think giving yourself some grace and giving yourself some understanding that it's okay for you to be in a good place, to be healthy, and that you don't need to overwork yourself to get the medal. That's not an accomplishment in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. The hustle culture is dead, y'all. We're not here for it, especially if you spent 
time grinding to get your degrees, to get your career, like get your money up. At some point, you got to start enjoying all the fruits of your labor. And that involves putting in some damn boundaries with work because otherwise it will become your entire identity and consume you. All right, let's talk about the financial part of this. Travel is not necessarily the cheapest hobby. (laughs) So how did you facilitate this financially so that you weren't going into debt, which is what I was doing. I was putting shit on credit cards, not planning out my travel. And then every time I came back from a vacation, I had like a hangover. I had a debt hangover that I had to deal with. And it wasn't until I started realizing like, hey, I should probably budget for this, that things started to turn around. That's a very common issue and a very common concern for people. My first credit card was a Victoria's Secret credit card in college. And I got like sent to collections for like a bra that was like a hundred dollar bra or something. And cause I moved so much that I didn't end up getting the bills. And then, and, then, and so I was scarred from credit cards. My mom was always like, no credit cards, like just cash only. My family did not believe in debt whatsoever. It was considered irresponsible to be in debt or to spend beyond your means or anything like that. So credit cards scared me. And I graduated law school and I was a working attorney and I didn't really have any credit cards. I had like one Capital One secured credit card to like try and rebuild my credit after the Victoria's Secret snafu of like 21. And I now look at it where like any single dollar that I spend that's not on a credit card is actually a waste of that dollar because the only thing that dollar is getting me is whatever it is I'm purchasing versus extra points that are then going to get me free travel. So now I never spend on my debit card. I've completely changed that but it took me a long time to get there. And so I started off whenever I need anything, I go to the library. I love the library so much. It's my happy place. And so I went to the library and I just took out all the books that I could about travel and how to travel. So that was my first step. And I just dug into like learning and figuring things out. Scott Keys was very influential for me from Scott's Cheap Flights. He's actually a friend and I'm very proud of his progress as well, but he had a book on finding affordable flights and that was really helpful. And he has a program, Scott's Cheap Flights, where they send out flight alerts. There's many flight alert programs now, but he was one of the first. And I find that he has a lot of integrity and that the program operates well. You know, they don't charge you when you're not looking. That was one way. I started to learn how to find affordable flights. I was able to get a $70 round trip flight to Aruba, a $16 flight to Ecuador, a $38 flight to New Zealand, $100 flight to Iceland on the budget airlines, or then Wow Air, but now Play, Norse, there's a ton of different budget airlines. So My three guaranteed ways to find cheap flights that I always tell people, number one are flight alert programs. It's best for lazy people who don't want to learn anything. It's super complicated to them. They don't want to deal with points and miles. Like they just want to find the deal and go. Flight alert programs do that because they have people that are constantly scouring the internet for mistake fares, you know, sales, price drops, anything like that. And then they email you when there's a deal. Since I do this now for a living, I get like 12 different flight alert programs. And I'm constantly like every single day, I get dozens and dozens of emails of flight deals. So that's one way for people who just don't really are intimidated by it and just want to have quick, easy wins. You do need some flexibility there because you need to be able to book right away when they find that. And you need to be able to be a little bit like, oh, maybe I wasn't considering that destination, but there's a really great deal to go there. So let me give it a shot. Then budget airlines, which are relatively a new concept still, there was a point in time where everything was included. You had these major legacy airlines. And now over time to make air travel more accessible, they've made everything more a la carte. And that's where these budget airlines have come along where they're charging you like this base low fare for the ticket and then everything else is an add-on. But if you can anticipate that and you can pack light so you're not checking a bag, bring your own food so you're not buying anything on board. I have 
every single headset you could possibly imagine. I will never pay $2 for a headset on a plane ever. I come prepared with all of my own. And so these are things that you can anticipate and then keep your cost to just the bare ticket cost. And some of these will have $100 flights to Europe. Even within the US domestically, there's a lot of budget airlines that people get nervous about frontier spirit. And they're like, I don't want to fly them. But really, if they get you from point A to point B, who cares? And then the third way is points and miles, which I recommend for people who have a set destination and expensive destination and set dates. So like, you know, you need to go to New Zealand for a wedding in July, right? The best way to get there and to save that money is going to be to use points and miles. And that's done with credit cards and just taking the money that you're already spending and getting something else for it. And like all these people that have like 3% cash back or all these other credit cards, I'm like, but why? Because you could be getting, you could be getting airline points and miles and that's so much more valuable. You know, you can get a $9,000 flight for like points, which is essentially, it feels like monopoly money. It feels like fake money that I just get to redeem for actual real things. And so learning about that and learning how to use credit cards responsibly to get the bonus sign up miles and really harness that should open the world for you in a way that you might not have expected. That is brilliant information that you're sharing. And I had the exact same experience with credit cards. My parents told me they will ruin your life. Stay away from them. They were like, we had to file for bankruptcy in our 20s because of credit cards. And they have been lifelong Amex green card holders because... American Express, the traditional card doesn't have like interest, right? It's just like, you just have to pay it off every month. I was terrified of credit cards for a while. And then I had a toxic relationship with them when I started just charging things without a plan, not really understanding how to maximize points. But now like you, I stopped using my debit card. I literally have like one credit card for groceries because I know that's the most points I'll get for that category. Use one for gas, use one for my business. And now I'm like, why the hell haven't I been doing this forever? But it's like, you really have to have the discipline to pay off those cards because otherwise, if you're racking up points, but then you're racking up interest too, you're absolutely nullifying the benefits of having those cards, right? Absolutely. There needs to be an element of responsibility to it, but done right. I actually improved my credit score by over a hundred points. I'm like in the excellent range because I have all these credit cards and my debt to balance ratio is so low. Like if you keep it under 30%, that will boost your credit score. So everybody's like, oh, taking out these credit cards are going to hurt you. I take out more and more credit cards. And every time I do, my overall available spend goes up. And so my score just keeps getting higher and higher. And so that was insane to me in and of itself, because I was always stuck in like low to mid 600s. And now I'm like, whoa, I got enough credit score. I can do whatever. I could apply for like anything. You need to play the credit game in America. And I think so many of us are scared to play it. And that's why we get left behind. Whereas people who come from families that have this knowledge and share that information and add their kids to their credit cards early on, so they have a longer credit card history, they have so many more advantages. And meanwhile, a lot of our community is just sitting there being scared to even get in the game. And in doing so, you limit yourself and you're keeping yourself in higher interest rates, not able to get the same opportunities, not able to apply for the same things, and definitely not flying business class for free, which is a shame because (laughs) there needs to be more people in business class. Business class is lovely. And so it's a marvelous tool when used correctly, and it can really do a lot for you. And 
it's not anything that's hard to learn. If you've learned how to make your own household budget, if you've learned how to do other things, you can learn to manage credit cards too. And I recommend that somebody who's starting, so my first card was the JetBlue card. It was a branded airline credit card. I knew JetBlue had a lot of flights operating out of South Florida. I knew I liked the airline. They also go to South America, so I could get some international flights. And it was a low minimum spend threshold, just $1,000 within the first three months. And I had enough points that I could immediately redeem that for a free flight. And I saw that instant win for something where I was already spending a thousand dollars that month anyway. So I was able to very comfortably pay it off and then redeem that. And so I think if you're somebody that's getting started, a good way is to go with an airline branded credit card because you don't have to worry about transferring points and what is the value of the points, you know, and all those things. It's very clear. You got X amount of JetBlue points. You can search for whatever flights operate with those points and then go from there. So it's a good first step. Love that. Okay. So now you're doing this full time. You have turned your passion for travel into your career. Talk us through how you made that. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend, but what won't change needing health insurance. United healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Happened. It was not easy. So (laughs) (laughs) as with most good things in life, right? (laughs) Yes. So I started blogging about eight years ago when I was working as a law clerk at a firm that I just felt like sucked the soul out of me because I was just doing like really routine mundane paperwork, like insurance stuff. And I was like, I hate this. And so I wanted to have a creative outlet. And so I simultaneously started blogging and then also started freelance writing. So I was writing, but not getting paid to do it, which everybody was giving me a lot of grief for. So I was a contributor to Elite Daily and I had posts with them that had, you know, 10 million views and everybody's like, oh, that's awesome. How much did they pay you? And I'm like, nothing. (laughs) And that was definitely not what a lot of people would have recommended. I know a lot of people look down on me because of that, but because I was getting so much traction through that platform, I actually had my first magazine editor for Pace Magazine, which is an online magazine, contact me to see if I wanted to write for their travel vertical. So my first comp, like travel journalist trip was to Universal Studios. And I remember like the Universal Studios PR person came out to meet me and she like walked me through the line. So I got in for free and I had like the fast pass for free. And I was just like in Harry Potter world being like, this is awesome. I can't believe this is my job and I'm getting paid to do this. And it was like $150 for the piece or something simple. But it was the first time that I realized that I could actually actually get paid to do this and get paid to travel. And it was just such a great day. I felt so elated to be there. And then from there, I was still figuring out blogging. I was still just kind of putting stuff out there. I rebranded twice. I started as 20 chic because I was like, oh, we're in our 20s and we're poor, but let's make it work. And then I was like, oh, well, that's not going to last very long or really grow with me. 
And then I rebranded to like, what's Jen up to? Because I knew it wanted to be like experiential based. And then my brother would make fun of me like mercilessly. He'd be like, oh, if I want to figure out what's Jen up to, I'll just go to what's Jen up to.com. And he was like super mean about it. I was like, okay, point received. In 2016, I sat down with a friend and we kind of brainstormed. And that's where Jen on a Jet Plane came out. And I was like, okay, let's do it. But I was really at the point of shutting down my blog because I didn't know anything about monetizing a blog. I didn't know. I just was using it as like articles that weren't accepted for Elite Daily. I would publish it there. But those kind of articles weren't going to do well on my site. They weren't SEO driven. They weren't any of that. And then once I decided to take this seriously, so one of the trips that I took in that 12 trips and 12 month challenge, not super glamorous, but it was to Huntsville, Alabama for the TVEX conference where I attended the Travel Bloggers Exchange conference there. And first I immediately recognized the difference between like all the law conferences I've been made to go to where I'm dragging to get there. I'm sitting in the back. I'm doing other things on my computer, hoping people don't notice, like half paying attention, just really not wanting to be there versus TVEX where I'm like hustling to sit in the front row, asking questions, excited, like ready to go to the next session. I was like, ooh, maybe this is what it should feel like. Like maybe I should actually be excited about what it is I'm doing and not dreading it and just going through the motions. And it was funny because they were saying that at my job, they were having a meeting and they were like, oh, I hope Jen's not like thinking about leaving us. And that's exactly what I was doing. And so that helped. And, and it helped me see that there's a business to this and that it needs to be treated like a business. So attending my first conference was a complete game changer. And then when I went to the Traverse conference in Europe the next year, I actually invested in a full day SEO workshop with my friends, Gemma and Laura from Make Traffic Happen. And they were phenomenal in that it finally clicked for me why none of my things were getting traction, like why my articles weren't working. And I was like, oh, I should actually be writing this in like a completely different way and doing research and everything. So full day workshop. And by the time I left, I realized, oh, this is doable. And then I put what I learned there and implemented it. And then that was in the summer, like July or June of 2018. And then six months later, I started to see the immediate effects on my blog and being able to monetize. And then once I got into Mediavine, I was like, oh, this is dope. (laughs) Yes. The passive income of blog ads is next level. It's amazing. Like I loved that I would make money while I slept. That concept was completely foreign to me. Somebody who's always been time for money, hard work for money. And so Mediavine was just my first real meaningful income from blogging. And then from there, I started to learn about, you know, sponsorships, working with brands. I had my first brand deal also from TVEX not paid, but sponsored. So I went to the Margaritaville resorts in Hollywood. And this is amazing. Like, look at how people are greeting me. And I remember when I was checking in, I looked and I actually saw my picture in like the notes that the staff had. And I was like, get out of town. They sent my picture. (laughs) (laughs) Have people looking for me to recognize me? Like, this is crazy. I like snapped a paparazzi photo of it, posted it on my Facebook. And I was like, yo, I I made it. That was my first introduction into, you know, sponsor posts and really making meaningful blog revenue. Also in March of 2018, before I quit my job, I quit in April 2018, I 
published my first book. And so that was also proof that I could make money off of a digital product. I published on Amazon and I became a bestseller in eight categories. I won an award. And I remember thinking like, well, that's all I need. Like it was maybe about $200 a month or so of passive income at the time. But I was like, this is scalable. So if it's 200 for one book, then five books is on a thousand. Like, you know, and, and I could just write more. And so all of the proof that I needed to really have faith in myself and bet on myself and still four years later, I still sometimes am I like, I'm like, is this going to go away any moment? Am I going to have to go find like a quote unquote real job? And I'm in awe that it's actually managed to pan out and that it's actually become something that's more lucrative than my legal career, where I had a judge reach out to me the other day being like, I'd love to chat with you about this transition. Like everybody wants to leave. Also people that are watching me now and actually thinking that what I do is very prestigious in and of itself and really something to aspire to. Whereas before it was like, oh, well, you're this broke blogger without a real job. (laughs) Yeah, that perspective is wild. It's like nobody really understands what you're trying to do until they're seeing the fruits of your labor and all of those free gigs, the initial unpaid work. They don't see the struggle. They just see the success and they're just like, holy shit, I want to do that. And so for folks who are in the beginning stages of their journey to trying to monetize their passion, what's your best piece of advice to keep folks motivated, especially in those early days where you might not see a lot of monetary success? First, having an accurate timeline, I think always helps. I knew that most bloggers fail within the first two years. If I made it past two years, I was doing great. And so if you have that in mind and you're not like, oh, well, if I don't make money within the first two months, I'm a complete failure, but rather start to look at how much you've progressed, be grateful for the opportunities that have come your way. I think that that's a good way to look at things versus thinking that it has to be immediate success. And it's really hard to do that in this industry where it feels like seemingly everybody has immediate success because you're bombarded with people's successes when you're on social media and you're like, Why am I not doing as good as this person? Why is this person getting paid more than me? All of these things. And we're in constant comparison. So I think kind of just giving yourself a moment to be like, wow, I've done really well. I've learned a new skill in this time. I've made a new connection in this time. Like there's so many other ways that you can judge your progress without having to necessarily use the same barometer as other people and their success. And then I think investing in yourself as a business. So like I said, going to a conference was a game changer for me. There's just so many things I wouldn't have seen. I wouldn't have learned connections. I wouldn't have made if I was sitting there trying to do this in my own bubble at home. I tell this to people all the time. So I have people message me all the time, wanting contacts and wanting all these things. And I share the contacts. I'll give you the contacts, but honestly, You're going to have a difficult time pitching because I took the time to meet this person face to face. I have a connection with them. I've already talked to them about me. They know who I am. Whereas you're just a random email in their inbox asking for something. And so it's important to make that connection. And with any industry, like the network that you have is important. Being part of that community is important. And so, so many people try to do this just in their own bubble without really realizing that you need others to help you get there. And I think that that's the best way to do it. So joining those conferences, for me, I joined the Society of American Travel Writers, the North American Travel Journalists Association. I go to those conferences. I'm part of the board of the Eastern Chapter of SATW because I want them to know me. And I want to be somebody that stands out. And so I think if you have that in mind and then you just act consistently, Nas Daly, who did his like thousand day video challenge was saying that one day he was just 
super disheartened and was thinking, you know, all these butt videos on YouTube are getting like 3 million views and I'm sitting here posting something really meaningful and wonderful and I can't get like 100 views. And he said he felt so downtrodden that day and was really just thinking, I'm going to quit. Like, I'm not going to do it. And he felt so grateful that he did the video that day anyway, because if he would have not done it that day, then maybe he would have skipped another day and a different day after that. And so I think the best thing you can do when things get hard is to just keep on track and understand that there's going to be ups and downs and that your path isn't going to look identical to somebody else's and that you may not have a super skyrocket way to success, but that doesn't mean that you're still not going there. That doesn't mean that that's still not where you'll end up. I absolutely love that perspective. It's so easy to fall into the trap of instant gratification nowadays, because like you said, everybody's quote unquote success is being shoved in your face. And this comparison game that we play with ourselves can be really toxic. And so I think it's important for us to be okay with putting on the blinders, being okay with like muting people or unfollowing people who might be contributing to those feelings and curating an environment and a community of people who are going to keep you motivated because Unfortunately, you know, if you are the first person to be like starting a passion based business, most of your friends and family are probably going to be like, what the fuck are you doing? And so you're going to need to surround yourself with people who are also doing those things so that when you are having those moments of doubt, you don't go to your abuela who's going to be like, bueno, we told you that was a stupid idea. And you have your friend, your business bestie who's like, girl, I feel like shit too, but it's okay. We're going to do this. Absolutely. I have at least two different mastermind circles that I'm a part of for that reason. So that when I have something that I know only they will understand, I feel like I do have a supportive community and resource of people to talk to. I also love that you touch on investing in your education, because what I find is unless you know what questions to be asking or what information you're missing, you could just be spinning around in circles. It's like one thing to be trying to Google your way or like YouTube your way to success. But I find it's much faster when you work with experts, you connect with people who've already done the thing that you want to do. So you don't have to build it from scratch. You can just literally take the education, the information that they are offering and fast track your way there. Absolutely. And there's ways to do that because I know people get concerned about budgets. But like I said, I just started with like library books that were free to rent and then upgraded my way to a conference, just the basic ticket and then invested in the full day workshop. So you can go gradually if you feel like you don't have thousands to invest in like private one on one training. There are lots of different ways that you can still start and then work your way up to that. All right. So I would love to know because, you know, we love talking about money on this show. So how do you make money as a travel writer? Many different ways. So a passive blog revenue is one. Oak royalties is another. Sponsored posts, which are like buku bucks and kind of crazy what you get paid by brands. And that was something that I had to tackle too. The first time that I had a brand deal that paid me more than I made in one month as an attorney, I felt really guilty. Like, should I be making this money? Like, this is an easy thing for me to do. Like, And so that's something that I think a lot of people should consider because there's a lot of budget there and and your talent is valued. As this content creator, you're kind of a one-person team, videographer, model, editor, everything. Also freelance writing. So for the different magazines and outlets that I've write for that thankfully over time have gotten to be higher than 150 per article, but that took time too. You know, I started with much lower rates than what I have now. And now as an award-winning writer, I can kind of argue that and negotiate for higher rates sometimes. Public speaking. So I do public speaking gigs 
And then I also do social media consulting since I have a 200,000 plus followers on TikTok. I've been able to help different businesses start their accounts, consult them in terms of like their own brand strategy and growing on that platform. Yeah. So I want y'all to be paying attention. This is a multiple income stream situation, which I think everybody needs to have, but especially when you are an entrepreneur, you need to have different ways of making money because let's just say, you know, there's a recession and brand budgets dry up and your whole spiel is making money off of brand partnerships. Well, what the hell are you going to do when there's no more budgets for influencer marketing? So then you can rely on your passive income streams with your book and your blog. It's a matter of sustainability for me when it comes to business you must have different levers that you can push and pull to make money. It just helps you sleep at night. So let's talk about the mental part of entrepreneurship, because I think for a lot of people, there's this fear of the unknown, of the lack of stable income, of, oh my God, is this just a fluke or is my success real? Wondering if you've dealt with any of those feelings and how you navigate that. Yes, I feel that every day. (laughs) Same, sis, same. (laughs) Every single day, do I deserve to be making this much? Like, am I gonna like fall any moment now? Should I have something more stable? So much fear, even particularly now when the pandemic came and travel completely stopped, my blog earnings evaporated because nobody's searching for travel anymore and nobody was buying travel books and nobody was doing any of these things. And so I started doing social media management for a coding boot camp that I've kept as a crutch for like the last two years because I'm like, this is really good money and it's like really little work and they just leave me alone like it's super low pressure and super easy but every time that I spend doing something for them is time that I'm not spending doing something for my own business and so I actually had to put a hard stop and a hard deadline and be like after this date I'm not going to be doing this anymore even though it's quote unquote, easy money, because it's not how I want to be making my money. I had the same thing. Teaching online was one of the ways that I also helped afford travel during my 12 trips in 12 months. And so I held on to teaching online for so long, even though it was $20 an hour and I have to wake up super early to do it. But I had a maybe an extra like 700 a month. And I just felt this fear that if I didn't have that extra 700 a month, like what will happen to me? I will surely go into poverty and be homeless. And so I held on to it for much longer than I needed to because I was so scared to let that go. And then I learned that when I left it, like I didn't even need it. I was making more doing my own streams. Like there's not been one moment where I look back and I'm like, I should be teaching online still, like never. And so I have a TV in my house, but I don't really watch it. It's downstairs. Instead of listening to the news, I do positive audiobooks when I wake up every day. So self-help audiobooks, business audiobooks, entrepreneurial ones like Secrets of the Millionaire Minds or like, you know, rework all these different books that are really positive and get me in the right mindset. I pick power thought card every morning and a self-love card and I say them out loud. I think it's really important to get myself in that mindset of like abundance and creating and being able to receive versus like scarcity, worry, fear, comparison, like straight out of the bat in the morning. Like that's really heavy before 8 a.m. And so starting my day off right helps. Having a community of people that I can talk to really helps because I can see like, oh, this is possible. Like I have a friend who just made $40,000 on a single brand deal, you know, and I'm just like, man, (laughs) I need to double my rights. And that helps to see that other people are doing it. I think a lot of us will maybe take that as a way to put ourselves down. Like, oh, I didn't make $40,000. So I suck versus like, 
I can make $40,000 too, because she has the same skill sets that I do, because we're doing the similar things. And so it helps to see other people succeeding. It helps to have people to talk to, and it helps to stay in the positive mindset and realize that there's always more ways that you can make money. If you have a core skill set, whether it's you know how to write, you know how to speak, you know how to edit, you know how to do whatever it is that you know, you can monetize that off of so many different ways. And so I think it is really hard to bypass the fear and it is really hard to have faith in yourself and to cut off things that seem steady and like you kind of hold on to it because you're like, but if you go, what will happen to me? They say entrepreneurship is like jumping off a cliff and building a parachute on the way down. And it is super terrifying, right? Like I'm not a fan of roller coasters. I don't like that feeling like your heart is in your stomach, but it's also so rewarding when you see that it actually works, when you get that payoff, when you get the $40,000 brand deal, when you get to see your dreams come to fruition. You know, I was just flying business class in Q suites to and from Qatar on a press trip where I was being hosted as a journalist and I was staying in all the best places and I had my own private guide and my own tour. And I was thinking, you know, I've come so far, I would have killed to have had opportunities like this years ago. And now this is my reality. This is just what it is. You know, the pilot came to say hi to me because he knew I was writing and I was, and he was a gorgeous pilot. Let me tell you, he had blue eyes. He was from Spain. His name was Alejandro. And so, and I was just like, I can't believe this is my life. And I'm sitting here in VIP with like people wanting to come and talk to me. And so it can feel really rewarding when you get there, but it's so, so scary to get there. And so all I can say to tackle that is to continue to keep your mindset and on high vibrations because things like comparison, like scarcity, like jealousy, why did that happen to them? That should have happened to me. Like learning to celebrate others because your success will come as well when you celebrate other people. You can't be the only person ever winning at life. That's a boring world. You want other people to win too. And you want to be celebrating each other. And I think that's been a big mindset shift that I've had to make and switching from that because I think we just aren't in an atmosphere or in a world with social media and all of these people's accolades being dropped on you every time where you can feel confident about yourself when you're being bombarded by that. Yeah, it's so true. The mindset work, I think, is one of the things that I wasn't necessarily prepared for with entrepreneurship. It wasn't something that I realized was going to come along with it, but it's just also been the most impactful work that I've done. None of the strategy and the let's build this new product and let's raise this price has equated to the amount of work that I've been able to do up here and how it just permeates every aspect of your life, right? Like once you start doing the work, it's not just about the business. It's about like every decision that you make changes, the shit you allow in your personal life changes. Like there's so much leveling up that happens and it all starts with the mind. So I love that advice. Now, one thing that I have found that a lot of people who are starting businesses, especially Latinas, have this immense fear of showing up as themselves, of putting themselves out there, using their voice. And I think culturally, we're told calladita es más bonita, right? Like we are not taught how to be okay with like being in the spotlight and speaking up and doing what like you do as a three-time TEDx speaker, like public speaking, who the fuck wants to do that? That sounds terrible, right? Like being on video, doing TikToks, Instagram lives, that shit sounds like a nightmare for a lot of us because I don't think we've given ourselves permission as a community to use our voice and tell our stories. So what has that journey been like for you? Was that always easy for you or is that something that you had to build as a skill set? 
I didn't realize it at the time, but I do think I've been trained to be a public speaker from the get-go. I didn't realize it, but even with law, I was trained to be a writer and I was trained to be a public speaker. And I was president of my elementary school. So I was like in fourth grade and I won that election. I remember wearing like tube socks, like if they were like pantyhose kind of thing. And then they like half slid down during my speech. And I was like, oh, I can't believe I still won like this, like looking in a hot mess. And so I think I've always been comfortable with putting myself out there, but it hasn't been easy. In the course of that, I've learned a lot of things like when I was in Model UN and the first year I did that, I was Cameroon. I was a country nobody cared about. And it wasn't like I was competing against all these kids from Harvard. And so I had a lot of fear like, oh, I'm from FIU. I'm like from a public school in Florida. Nobody's ever heard of. And I'm sitting here competing against all these people that must be better than me. And so the first year I got completely demolished. And then the second year I won best delegate out of 400 people. But it took me like really coming back and being like, how can I do this better? What can I learn? You know, in law school and trial team, I had moments where I had to learn. They put me through the ringer and I had them be like in the middle of a trial competition on purpose. Like, Miss Ruiz, you're going to shut up now. And until I tell you, you can speak again. Like you're going to stay quiet. I had to learn how to get over the embarrassment really easily because I, I knew other people in trial team before that couldn't cut it and they had left like crying and quit and everything. And I just had to sit there and like keep my mouth shut and like completely handle all the fire that was inside of me and deal with my best to not talk back. But I've learned because I've done it in debate. I was made to argue things I didn't support. So I was made to do arguments like against gay marriage and against abortion. I had to make a convincing argument for that on purpose to make me uncomfortable. So I do think I've had a lot of training for that, but it's still terrifying. My first TEDx talk, I specifically remember I had no feeling in my toes. I was really concerned because I had to stand and I was scared I was going to just like fall on the way out because I just, I can't feel them. And this blessed the heart of the girl who was backstage. And she's like, do you want to see puppy videos? Will that make you feel better? Puppies are so nice. And I was like, yes, let's see puppy videos. My second and third, I still was really nervous. And so it doesn't stop. It's not that I ever get less fearful or feel like invincible or like I have it all figured out. It's just that I do it anyway. I do it messy and it doesn't matter because I do it. And as you go, you get better, you perfect things. You know, I've been working with a media coach to try to center my voice and slow down my pacing because I talk very fast as a Puerto Rican. And, you know, these are things that I'm learning now later. And I'm sure 10 years from now, I'll be even better. But if you don't start, you're never going to be able to improve. And so I think that that's been the biggest thing for me where I don't care if I do something messy. I don't care if it gets out there and it's not 100% perfect because at least I did it. And I'm proud of myself for putting myself out there. And I think a lot of people hold themselves to the standard of needing to be 100% perfect right off the bat. And that's just impossible. And even if you are 100% perfect, people will still hate you. People will still find issue with what you're doing. And so if you're putting a lot of your validation externally and waiting for other people to give you your props, your awards, your kudos, you're going to feel really deflated. And even when you get those things, you're still not going to feel like you made it. So it requires a lot of internal strength to push through that. And I think anybody has it because again, it's not anything special. It's just a matter of you keep going. There are so many gems in this episode. People are going to be replaying this over and over again. And I know people are going to want to find you, follow you, subscribe to all your content. So where can people find you and become a part of your amazing, inspiring orbit? Yes, you can find me at Jen on a Jet Plane on all the socials, TikTok, Instagram. And you can also find my website, jenonajetplane.com. And my books are on Amazon under Jen Ruiz. 
Jen, this has been an incredible conversation. We've touched on everything from entrepreneurship to career advice to travel and everything in between. And I think what I find the most compelling and inspiring about your story is you have this unapologetic way of giving folks permission to evolve. It's not like you got to have your shit figured out at 18 and you got to go and do that for the rest of your life. And you got to go and conform to this checklist that we get from our parents about what life should look like and what you should be doing by a certain age. And I think so many of us feel trapped maybe by those decisions that other folks have projected on us about who we are and what we need to be doing. And so it's so refreshing to talk to a fellow Latina, fellow Boricua, who's like, you can go and create whatever the hell you want in your life, in your career. Thank you for giving us permission to do that. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's my goal. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina, the ultimate blueprint for becoming poderosa with your dinero. This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of the Financially Lit Latina, just head over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start. That's YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated contents constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.